once this pops up, we good to go. There we are. Hello, everybody. Happy Monday. Thanks for tuning in for Bring the Jury. We've got Luke and Brian Sheely here from the Sheely Law Firm located in Columbia and Charleston, South Carolina. We're currently at the Columbia office. Um, that'd be fun to do an episode maybe down in Charleston one day. Not so famously hot, Columbia. Yeah, not so famously hot. Um, so today we've got a lot to talk about with regards to Brian Koberger and the Idaho Four. Um, he had his arraignment today at uh, 9 a.m., um, we're going to talk about the grand jury indictment. These two are going to kind of walk through what that looks like, um, why perhaps that moved so quickly, et cetera, et cetera. But while you all are all logging on, I'm just going to give you a quick rundown of where you can find our content. You can always follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, obviously. Um, MySpace. LinkedIn, MySpace, yes. You are one of our top eight friends on MySpace. <laughs> um, and... I'm forgetting what YouTube, obviously. So we always upload the full episode to YouTube following um, this live recording and also on major streaming platforms like Spotify. Um, all of our episodes are now on Spotify. Yay. Yay. <laughs> um, so let's go ahead and just dive right into his indictment by grand jury and what that looks like. Well, I, I think the first thing we can talk about is... He didn't get a prelim. Okay. Um, so, you know, a number due of... Due to that indictment. Right. Due to that indictment. So, you know, a lot of the media coverage has been focusing on the preliminary hearing um, and, you know, witnesses being subpoenaed for this and how much information was going to be sourced from this prelim where the lead investigator gets to talk about probable cause, um, where we get to, or not we, but defense lawyers get to cross-examine. I'm going to need that so you can follow your stuff. The <laughs> um, bottom line is it would be a great opportunity for there to be sworn testimony. And that didn't happen because the state went directly to the grand jury with this case. Um, members of the community get brought in uh, to hear testimony from law enforcement. This is not a proceeding where defense counsel gets to go is just a law enforcement party and if the lovely grand jury feels that there's enough credible evidence they will indict uh, and that's and then you don't get the prelim so it's kind of a i guess luke disagree or agree but in my opinion it's kind of a way for law enforcement to go about their business in a way that doesn't let themselves be attacked one bit in terms of you know, live uh, cross-examination from law enforcement witnesses or other witnesses. It's kind of a secret get-to-the-finish-line experience that kind of insulates and streams, streamlines a proceeding. Luke, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, yes. I, I, I never really thought... I, I was always skeptical that there would actually be a preliminary hearing because even in our major cases, I, we asked for one, but a preliminary hearing, you don't have a right to that. It's a request, and you get it if your case is not indicted. And if you can have it, yes, it's a wealth of information, of examination of a lead investigator regarding probable cause, any things they didn't do, you get them under oath, trying to explain it. You can make a motion to dismiss, depending on the circumstances. So in our big cases, it always seems kind of a race to get that preliminary hearing. And I'll, you know, it's, it's a total race to indictment on a big case, 
you know, it doesn't surprise me that a prosecutor wouldn't want that to happen. Sometimes I've even had, in, in our own cases, the scheduled for a hearing, you get geared up for it, and then it gets continued. Well, that happened to me last week <laughs> on a case that I was super ready for. I was ready to get that thing dismissed. I was ready to grill the law enforcement on a bunch of different issues. And when I showed up, and the judge and the clerk were kind of looking at me like, oh, yeah, last-minute continuance by the officer. Um, and I was like... Am I privy to this continuance? What's going on? They kind of looked at me. Um, and I reached out to the prosecutor and just kind of said, hey, heads up. Don't just take this before the grand jury. I want a crack at this. And she assured me she would not, and that would be rescheduled in due course. But she did confirm that it was the officer that asked for this continuance. I'm not, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean it was some sneaky business, but... But it can be. But it, sometimes it can be. <laughs> so on a... On a We've had murder cases where there was some continuance due to an officer training or something that we heard of at the last second. And then, lo and behold, it gets indicted the next week at the grand jury. And sorry, Sheila, you don't get your prelim. So it is a tactical move that is not surprising on a case like this. So Luke, now that it has been indicted before the grand jury, um, what is an arraignment, Luke. What was this whole thing that everyone was so interested in today with Kohlberger? It's just a very formal process where you, now that there is a live indictment, he has to be served with it, you're brought before a judge, and quite literally they want to know, how do you plead? Do you plead guilty to this indictment? Do you plead not guilty? Uh, if you plead guilty, you can go get sentenced right then and there. That never happens, but it's just a formal process to acknowledge the the new charging document. Um, very strange, though, apparently, as reported today, some unusual behavior by Mr. Koberger. Standing and side. that, uh, and which in my mind is never a good look, and that the judge questioned him, how does he plead? And he just stood there. And I, I didn't watch it live. I had my own court today. <laughs> but apparently there was a lot of silence until, and the judge ultimately said, well, I'm going to enter a not guilty for you. And so I was curious about why his lawyer would also stand silently with him. And that, because normally if a client freezes or acts strange, you know, you don't, you know, the eyes of the world are on you. You don't want to, you'll speak up and say, well, your honor, we're pleading not guilty. Thank you. But I'm just kind of wondering and speculating if that was some formulated discussion or request by Mr. Koberger that he really didn't want his attorneys to even acknowledge the indictment or something strange to the point of even responding to it because it's not normal behavior it's very much a perfunctory thing so to not say anything in response is yeah, I think quite strange. she I think she actually said he stands silent and so I guess that was her one comment still strange yeah, strong, like, to, to not strange. say your honor not guilty yeah you know, would you some people are asking, like, would there be any benefit to that? Like, what does that serve? No, to me, I mean, obviously, with a case like this where everyone's hyper-focused on his, the way he looks, the way he acts, the way he looks at things, stares at things. We're, we're looking at, you know, body cam footage from him from prior traffic stops. We're very interested in his behavior and demeanor. The only thing I can think of is, you know, well, why do we give them another opportunity to hyper scrutinize his words, even if it is something as simple as 
you know, judge, I'm, I'm pleading not guilty to these charges. Well, did he pause? Did he stutter? Did he look? Was there sweat on his brow as he said that? I mean, I, but, well, and, sorry to interrupt, but to that point, perhaps it's a very good move by the attorneys because let's remember, we do have a, a living eyewitness that claims to hear the suspect, the assailant say like, I'm here to help you. And we've got this, this bushy eyebrow, maybe, they don't want to create a recording of his voice that could then be used against him to say, hey, witness, did this sound like the voice that said, don't worry, I'm here to help? And then she goes, yeah, that's it. And you heard it because he was asked to answer a question in court. So maybe that's the smartness behind or it seemed like weirdness. Maybe, maybe. I mean, weird for the world because everyone wants to get his reaction to the indictment. Or it could be... You know, he's presumed innocent, so if, if you stand silent, as his lawyer says on his behalf, well, he's going to be have a not guilty entered on his behalf, um, logically, but maybe it is because everyone's thinking about the death penalty aspect of this case. They've got, they brought in death penalty lawyers on the prosecution side. This is certainly, you know, an aggravated situation. Maybe they're not trying to antagonize, um, victims family members by making a public statement of not guilty and in his own words and maybe is there something to that loop have handled death penalty cases or is it not really no i think i'm right about not not creating an audio recording of his voice because this is not it's an id case <laughs> well they've got his they've got his voice i know but to hear it live i don't know but i don't think saying not guilty at an arraignment antagonizes victims any more than because I mean, they're, they're told it's perfunctory and that he's not going to just hold up his hand and plead guilty and expect to be sentenced. So, I don't know. It is weird. It does ask a lot of questions here. But I don't think it would help or hurt a decision on death penalty. That's going to be based on the evidence and severity of the allegations. Um, and we got a trial date allegedly set for October, which is... I would be surprised if that happens. Um, Does that seem too early? Oh, yes. Um, especially right now. I mean, whoever these lawyers are, they probably build a team that's prepared or hopefully experienced enough to do a death case. But well, let's be honest. If Right now, that trial date is not thinking about death because death has not been noticed. It's thinking about just trying the, the four counts of murder. I mean, I think I read somewhere that the prosecution had like 60 days to inform the defense. And, and then if they did inform the defense and serve death notice, then it would have to be rescheduled out because then you get into all the complex functions of the death penalty trial. And, you know, you got lots of different stuff. Luke, you want to talk about death penalty 101 in terms of how it's different from just a normal trial? Yeah. Um, well, you've got a bifurcated trial, so you have one phase. Luke, for people that didn't go to law school or generally don't know what the bifurcated means, what is it? talk to us about. Well, you've that. got two phases. Two by two. You right? got the first part is a regular trial, just like any other murder case. Guilt or innocence has a prosecution proven it beyond a reasonable doubt, and if they do, then the sentencing is not just right then and there like a lot of cases there's a whole phase where and I, i've only dealt with it in south carolina 
Idaho may be slightly different, but they're going to have the sentencing phase, whether it's unanimous or not. But then there's evidence of mitigation put on by the defense and aggravation put on by the state to say whether he should get a sentence of death or life now that he's been found guilty of the murders. And so that creates a a whole entire second trial where from a defense perspective, you need to show mitigation, which is anything, any, anything about this person's life from mental health concerns to trauma in their upbringing, abuse, uh, fetal alcohol syndrome, something is not right about this person or something occurred to them, or it could just be what their mom and dad says to them, you know, in front of a jury about why they feel like they let him down. Um, a death case has such a uniquely different um, jury selection process that is way more involved and intense so that you find you find jurors that can appropriately consider a death case that they can give a life sentence if they can't they're not eligible um, and if they can find mitigation then they should not be allowed to go with death I mean there's an amazing amazingly complex and interesting death case this year the Parkland shooting in Florida we had some good friends on that case and they did such a great job and in that case if I'm not mistaken they didn't even they waived the first part they said he's guilty and we're just gonna have this trial about the sentence and as a heinous of a crime as you can imagine with all those children in that high school being killed they ended up with a life sentence and so the common public has to think well how did that happen and it's again because those excellent lawyers did a great job and presented that mitigation enough to convince that jury that he was worthy of saving. So we're way cart before the horse, but it, it's a vastly more expensive, more time consuming, more expert intensive trial that where the stakes are extremely high for both sides. And so there's a political calculus as well, a lot of times with a prosecution they don't want to pull all the stops and claim they're seeking death and then one, not win your, your guilt phase, or two, go all the way and then not, not get the death sentence. So a lot of it depends on the particular politics of that particular area. In Florida, yeah, they're going to seek death on anybody. South Carolina would have already been served with notice. In Idaho, they're taking their time. They're trying to make that analysis, but it would not shock me at all if that were if he were noticed with the state's intention to seek a death sentence i would be very very surprised if they still had an october trial date because there's just so much more work that needs to be done i mean that's that's less than a year from the killings themselves to have a death case that's that's fast just for a non-death murder yes trial i mean so but that's just you know when you have an arraignment you have to set schedules you have to set a trial date and try to work towards it. It doesn't mean that that will be when the trial goes, but you have to start scheduling. So So you mentioned, um, you know, maybe they'll bring family members to perhaps like take the blame for things that they could have done differently. Or, you know, maybe that speaks to a jury or whatever. Interesting that you say that. We're going to shift a little bit. Um, I was reading today that Koberger's sister actually um, suspected that he was involved in the killings. So over the holidays, 
she reported um, Brian's very odd behavior, like wearing latex gloves around their parents' home over the holidays. Um, so so much odd behavior and like weird, you know, just happenings that she even brought it up to her family. Like, do you all think Brian perhaps is involved? Um, dad was quick to defend him and say, you know, no. But apparently enough family members were suspicious because he was there at the time. He was acting strange that they then went and searched his car for evidence. Come to find out, we've since learned that he bleached his car, cleaned out his car um, before that had happened. So, you know, there was nothing to be found. Um, Interesting. Yeah. How can you all speak to if you've had a family member testify against their sibling in court. I mean, I'm not saying that that's going to happen, but it could just, I mean, I guess it's a possibility now the sister is suspecting his guilt. We've had family members testify against siblings. It depends on the nature of the allegations. Obviously, the more serious the situation, the more invested they feel in cooperating with the prosecution. So yeah, we've had sisters testify against brothers. We've had family members testify against each other. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, especially on something like this, I mean, if he's acting bizarre, doing things that are not normal at like a holiday homecoming kind of situation, brother's home from college, he's walking around the kitchen in latex gloves, he's, you know, staring off in the distance, he's keeping to himself, whatever it may be. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, and I read those reports, and I don't, I can see it both ways. I mean, yeah, I mean, tons of family will be, if especially if it's a death case, even if it's not, family will be interviewed by the defense to figure out a history psychologically. I guarantee you he's being evaluated. You always want to determine, one, is the person competent to assist in his defense right now? Seems every indication he's competent. Two, was he criminally responsible at the time? You know, it didn't seem to be a lot of things going on that were made public, but, you know, people have breaks, snaps from reality, all of that. And then you can explore uh, defenses where someone just couldn't comport their actions with the law at the time due to their mental health. But in terms of your original question, like, there could be evidence of weird mental health or you could just have a sociopath who's like, well, I'm home for the holidays and I'll be damned if I leave my DNA anywhere. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care if I look weird. The cops may be coming. So like, but that's such an obviously strange thing that it... That'd be so weird. Unless you're really a, a licensed mental health professional, I mean, it's hard to weigh in on that, but it certainly didn't seem to be secretive or trying to like not look crazy. <laughs> But, um, so like, but if she's like, oh yeah, Mr. Prosecutor, let me tell you about the time I caught, I caught him cutting the wings off birds when he was 10. Right. Which is one of the McDonald parts of the McDonald trilogy, which is like making up a serial killer. There's like three different, I guess, signs. So, uh, individuals who set fires, um, harm animals. And then the third is. It's fleeting me right now. I think I wrote it out. Kill people? And like kill, you know, multiple people. Um, my mental health professionals go ahead and sound off on that last one. Oh, I think wetting the bed. 
I, maybe I just made that up. But anyways, <laughs> that'd be such a weird thing if it was wrong. It probably is. Anyways, um, so yeah, yeah, definitely an odd bird. But there, and there's so much that we're going to dive into yeah. kind of with that. But but just collateral information like that in, in law enforcement is going to be all over the family's concerns about him. They're, they're going to be witnesses and they have no like ability not to testify he's not married there's no spousal immunity it's just you thought he was acting strange tell us about what he was doing you searched his car and what did you discover it smelled like bleach it appeared to be professionally cleaned how did that make you feel is that something normal uh in your experiences with brian coberter no so like i mean that stuff gets in front of a jury and it's it's damaging yeah and and you know Historically, any evidence of trying to cover your tracks after a crime tend to go towards your bad mental state, how you don't want to be discovered, how you are with it. You're not, you know, out of it to the point where you don't realize that it will be a good thing to to not be discovered. So those would all be very incriminating things, um, unlike someone who truly had some wild break and just didn't know what was going on. But... It could cut both ways, and we'll see how it plays out. The family, of course, if it's a death case, the defense will try to see if they'll be willing to testify about how much they loved him and bring bring to light things that really, you know, he might have done as, as a good human over the course of his life and ways he helped neighbors and sure. put out, you know... He was a security officer at his high school. Right. All the, I mean, that those things are very relevant, and the defense would try to show that. Um if we go there so so kind of jumping now to just his whereabouts around this Moscow area um, a lot of people are speculating that he met or perhaps first came in contact with Madison and Kaylee um, at a restaurant called Mad Greek I don't know if any of you all are familiar with that Mad Greek um, is the number one rated when you search vegan in the Moscow area, it is the number one restaurant that populates. This is important because Brian Koberger is a strict vegan. So maybe he's not cruel against animals. <laughs> Check that one off. Um, at, least, at least not in that way. This, yeah, at least not in that way. Um, so he's a strict vegan. He It is reported that he visited that restaurant establishment at least two times um, in his time in the Moscow area. And a lot of people are believing that's where he met Madison and Caleb because that is where the two girls worked. Um, so I'm sure we may hear from restaurant owners. Well, we've got this whole gag order right now. And the judge, actually, I'm shifting again. The judge has just switched. There's a new judge assigned to this case. And they, I guess, have the ability to lift this gag order. What would that, what would that allow for this whole case? Well, you know, it's probably something the defense wouldn't like because if I were, if we were his lawyers, we wouldn't want so much tainting of a jury. Yeah, I mean, certain thing. I mean, everything that's coming out right now, even under a gag order, people are, you know, theorizing. We, yeah, we're doing the yeah, same thing. Got, I mean, we're tons of stuff. <laughs> um, but if, if evidence is coming to light and. Prosecutors were holding press conferences, and we've already had a Dateline episode, even in light of the gag order, which has got to be law enforcement spilling the beans, which means 
they're violating a judge's order. Are they being paid? What's going on? Somebody is. Someone's getting paid. Um, not us. Not us. But um, so, I mean, the defense doesn't want a jury poll tainted, especially if it's a death case. Um, you know, I, I guess some, some concerns are some of these victims' family members want the gag order lifted because they want to be able to talk about it. They want information. They feel like maybe their rights under the victim's rights statutes are not being complied with as they should because maybe law enforcement is even scared to talk to them too much about the prosecution. So I know that they're part of you know, being leading the charge along with uh, media organizations to try to get the thing lifted. So what it could look like is a complete blanket withdrawal of any gag order and anything's you know, fair game, but more more likely it's going to be a more measured gag order um, that's not so broad and, and everything, but it's, um, if they change it at all, I mean, you know, no one wants a tainted jury, no one wants a jury that knows stuff about this case already or think they do, and that's just, you know, the media's got a right to be involved and see stuff, but the defense has a right against a you know, to have due process and to have a, you know, a fair day in trial that's not tainted by everybody assuming you're guilty because you have bushy eyebrows and you're kind of a weirdo. So it's, you know, it's one of those things. Yeah, I don't think, I mean, an arraignment, up until this time, you might have had some administrative judge marshaling the case. And now I think maybe it's been assigned to a particular judge who will be the trial judge. It's not... Not that different to what we had here with the Murdoch case where it kind of existed for a while and then Judge Newman was assigned by our court administration. Um, and you can see in our case what it was when you didn't have a gag order. I mean, everything's out being played out in, in public forums. So I don't know why, why a judge might change that unless he gets a request specifically for that because this has so much attention that you... Again, you're weighing the interest of publicity and, and the media's right to know and everybody to get access to information in a public court, but against a very real right to have a fair trial, which could be hampered by too much information one way or the other. So I don't know that we'll see the gag order change too much. I wouldn't if I were the judge. So Mad Greek. You know, is where presumably Koberger would have seen some of these mm-hmm. victims. Yeah, perhaps met them. I think, you know, they were servers. Because I think we're going to talk about there's information that he slid into one of their DMs. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's the next thing you want to talk about, but like I was yeah. always trying to figure out, well, how do you just. How do you know these people? How do you slide into someone's DMs if you don't like know a name to look up or you have some kind of connection? And so he would have been possibly served by one of the victims, maybe gotten their name or something right. and then tried to do the, do the sliding move. Um, <laughs> yeah, I believe the sliding, yeah, I believe that first it, it happened. Um, yeah, so I, I think what's happened now is that he, this is all speculation, but that he would have met them initially at this restaurant where they were servers and he was a customer. Um, and then, yes, it was said that two weeks before the slayings, uh, Brian Koberger repeatedly messaged one of the female victims. We don't know which, you know, I'm assuming either Madison or Kaylee, that would make the most logical sense if that's who he had contact with. Um, 
And, you know, it was just kind of this random string of unanswered messages of him saying, you know, hi, hi, what's up? Hi, how are you? Hi, you know, and just unanswered, unanswered, unanswered time and time again. And this kind of plays into that whole incel complex that we discussed in the latter episode where, you know, it's, it's a man who is, or I guess typically a man who is frustrated with society or frustrated with his lack of success with women and therefore reacts violently in some ways to kind of assert power or take, or take control back. Um, but yeah, so that, that was reported just two weeks before that happened, which, you know, doesn't look good for BK. We know from the Murdoch trial how key social media can be. Um, you know, with all the technology that we have now, whether yeah. it be a ring doorbell, a ring camera, or I mean, Snapchat, Wi-Fi or Snapchat, Snapchat. Uh, kind of. That was the nail in the coffin. Nail in the coffin, at least yeah. for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Snapchat was. But Bubba, was Bubba, it. Bubba yeah, down Bubba. there. So, like, so I didn't realize this until today either. There's another dog that witnessed this whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. But Bubba was the star for some reason. Well, Bubba for the Murdoch trial, but oh, for, for this, oh yeah, 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 the barking dog. That could yeah, yeah, be yeah. There was a dog, I believe, in one of the roommates' rooms. That if the dog could, that dog could speak. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, crazy. So let's talk about two. I know Luke, you kind of mentioned this too with the cell phone towers pinging. One of the big things that people are holding on to is that it seems as though Koberger stopped by visited kind of so close to the house at least 12 times that he was close enough to pick up the wi-fi can you kind of talk about how those those pings can be well, wait a second pick up the wi-fi of, yeah it is of the, the wi-fi of so the i guess victim's home yeah so i guess that that's would be different a, than a cell phone yeah tower. that's not a that's good not, fact that's cool there, there's <laughs> you know a cell phone tower is that, is that all dateline yeah, Dateline was very informative. <laughs> See, that's a really bad fact because yeah. I mean, cell phone triangulation. Would that mean that he? Would that mean that he then knew how to connect to their Wi-Fi? That would also be a bad fact. Like that clearly is coming from his cell phone dump. Chime in if you know. Um, but generally, like a cell phone tower has three sides to it. So if I'm, you know, pinging off a cell phone that just happens to be the closest one, it might be the closest one in two miles. Right. And, and I've got a wide triangle of area might be in there, so it doesn't. It may not necessarily mean a whole lot, but if I'm close enough to being on your Wi-Fi, and and I don't know how it would know, you'd have to log on and say, "Hey, yes, accept," unless it was public. For or, that, or I mean, we need a forensic expert to really answer this. But you know, when you're close enough, when I'm, you know in my living room and I so I pull up my Wi-Fi yeah, right you're now. gonna see build, you know buildings across the street that kind of stuff maybe that's what the phone are we talking about logged on or are we talking about somehow there's enough some to be within range record of which would probably be shown on the phone extraction yeah I guess we'll who we got right now Luke what we got well let's see who's there's only one other network our neighbor building over there that I can see whoopsie <laughs> <laughs> daisy um, but would your phone really register that it, you can, that's a possibility for you? I don't know. I think I'm sure it would. Someone, if you saw it, I'm sure it would. Yeah. So maybe that is like registering that maybe it's like picking up the Wi-Fi, and I'm sure there's still record of that. Yeah. I mean, we saw deep in the data, stuff. but in the data, data archive, but yeah. 
that is not a good look, Mr. No, Ryan it's not. <laughs> no, um, uh, no, it is not. If that bears out to be true, that's not a very good piece of evidence. Speaking of not great evidence, thanks to the internet, uh, it was also found, I believe, or the police are saying that Brian uh, bought the K-Bar knife from Amazon months before the stabbings. Mm. That seems like not a very smart move to me. Like, why would you use your Amazon Prime account? <laughs> You're like, you know what? Like, yeah. viewers frequently viewed this knife <laughs> like, with similar transactions. You must be a serial Five stars, killer. best you, for yeah. stabbing. Would you like latex gloves and a ski mask <laughs> with that? Um, it's not great, you know, like, because when you have this, his DNA profile, on the button of the sheath, you can have a defense that says, well, I can attack DNA. And maybe there's some ways to attack it. Maybe it's not strong. Let me get an expert. Maybe there's some other um, people that could potentially be a close match. But then when the same weapon, although not found, when you find the same darn knife, <laughs> the sheath that has your DNA on it, then... That's just a bad, bad fact because it's, it's just, it links you directly to a weapon that the sheath has found, whereas before it's just a little bit of a DNA fight. But, you know, when people talk, talk about having their receipts, that's, it would have been, if I were a criminal, criminology major and I was really borderline sociopath and was playing a crime, I'd probably pay cash at a right. At a pawn shop yeah. and wear a hoodie and maybe some latex gloves. <laughs> but um, so no, I mean, it's not a good look. Not a good look. Uh, There's a lot of fun. Dateline did not do him. I mean, if that's true, then you know, law enforcement is doing a very good job of covering their bases. Well, let me tell you another thing that law enforcement certainly will do. So okay. obviously, that's bad evidence for Coburger. What they will have done, though, they will separately be purchasing the exact mo uh, model make. K-Bar knife. Mm -hmm. And we will have that in court. Stabbing something. And, well, and then we'll have it going into the sheath that's in evidence. Well, yeah. And we'll have our, we'll have our OJ moment, right? Yeah. And, but, that, but this knife will fit the sheath. <laughs> and so they're they're going to do that. They they will, that OJ, like if the glove just doesn't yeah, fit. So law enforcement, they're going to have some forensic experts that come in there and take it. The exact make and model from the Amazon order. They're going to have order the same thing, verified its accuracy. They'll pull this prop piece of evidence out and they will, it's like, sword in the stone and then insert it into the sheath. Yeah. And then they're going to wave it around the courtroom in front of the jury and says, you know, well, before they do that, that's this bitch, she must find guilt. That same expert will have stabbed something soft and squishy and will have measured that that incision and go, Oh yeah. yeah. That yeah. matches that matches the well probably a pathologist will look at that. Yeah. All the incisions, all the how far the blade goes in, I mean all that stuff. At, at a four inch penetration depth, what kind of width do we get on the incision? And they'll they'll match that up perfectly. Um, and a good prosecutor will be taking that prop knife and will be waving around in front of Coburger whenever he takes a stand, right? Yes. So you think he's going to take the stand? Oh, no, he's not going to take a stand. Um, I definitely don't you, think that's a good idea. No, I, I assume you He's going to stand silent. I misspoke. Waving <laughs> around from the jury. You never know. Crazier things have happened, but... Well, the only other thing that I think about when we talked about our initial piece with 
you know, we're standing silent. You know, Luke has a good idea that it's to not allow his voice to be recorded. That's fine. But we could have ourselves a real client control issue. It could just be that Koberger is a real difficult, difficult client. And his lawyer is a woman. And is willing to blow up court proceedings unless things are done exactly the way he wants them. Mm -hmm. And a lawyer that is very fearful of public scrutiny and tainting a potential jury pool who's, you know, saying, if you don't do it the way I want you to say it, you're not going to like what I do in court to protect her client will just follow follow the instructions as given at this. I mean, that... I could see that being a possibility here. Yeah, I mean, they're they're still at a pretty critical rapport building phase where things are getting tense, and there's no reason to fight your client over something silly if he wants it done a certain way. But I still think it might be. I mean, I, if if I have a witness who heard something that night, and they're dying to compare voice voices for her to listen to, and you have a, a live and open court question and answer session by Mr. Koberger, I would not be wanting that to occur if that was one of the ways that he'd be ID'd. So that's just me. The client control issue that you kind of presented is an interesting idea just because so many people are talking about this whole like incel complex and and a lot of people in the community are coming out and sharing their experiences that they've had with Brian in which a lot of that kind of aligns. I find it interesting that his um, attorney is a woman, just because so many people have claimed, you know, how he kind of has this perhaps strange complex with women, you know, needing to feel um, the ability to kind of stay in control in those situations. Again, that's touching on that incel complex. But I'm going to reference a few. Can I just make yeah. one point that I know my brother, my brother is thinking too about her being a woman? You know, we often, if there's a real heinous allegation that is kind of gender specific or we, or we know that the prosecution or law enforcement will kind of try to bring that out, then it's very strategic sometimes to have a very qualified attorney be of the, you know, the, the opposite sex if it's a sex kind of gender issue to kind of like fight back against that. Yeah, yeah, way. yeah. And so that's, that's not uncommon. Or she might just be the most competent and qualified lawyer in that office. <laughs> well, yeah, naturally yeah, absolutely. She would have to be super qualified, super confident, but, you know, maybe helpful. Yeah. So some interesting interactions that um, he's had in the community. There's a local, like, brewery, I guess, in the town, and I believe the owner um, spoke with, um, or was interviewed about kind of the interactions that they had had with Brian Koberger in the area. Um reports saying that he would visit and sit and stare for a long time, perhaps, you know, alone, often, you know, staring at females, this, that, and the other thing kind of being odd, and until he would perhaps begin to drink, and then he'd get maybe a little bit more confident and try to engage with women in an awkward way, maybe asking them who they're there with, if they're alone, where do they live, which are just not, not great pickup questions. Um, to ask anyone and this person even went on to then say that when they scan the IDs at the door um, there's uh, like a database I guess where staff can go in and write comments about patrons that have come in Oh goodness! and 
staff had meant had a note on his ID so when it was scanned it says this guy makes creepy comments keep an eye on him he'll have two or three beers and then get a little too comfortable and so he did have to confront Brian at one point um, he got upset and he was never he never returned but calling uh, employees a bitch when they declined sorry TikTok but decline when she declined to answer questions you know stuff kind of the sorry Linus TikTok is normally Luke's thing. I know, I know. I don't know if I've on, on TikTok yet. <laughs> but yeah, none of this is good stuff. And this is kind of everything that Dateline went into. Um, one unrelated incident. He, and again, this is just speculation. This is just perhaps this was him. It's just odd. So this female colleague that he had, who's he was taking criminology classes with, um, they, I guess, became friends. And one day she came home from her apartment, or came home to her apartment, and things had been rearranged. So someone had been in there. She kind of felt unsafe. She contacted Brian, her friend, who then offered to install security cameras for her, which seems a little odd. And he would have had access to those, being that he knew, you know, her Wi-Fi information. So you know, just some of those weird little anecdotes that. Or maybe he was practicing. Or perhaps His he was really and concerned. He, and he moved the furniture and then was like, I know she'll come ask me for a little assistance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those things. <laughs> the dentist method? Do we need to talk about the dentist method? <laughs> Step <laughs> one, instill fear. This is exactly, he, he literally watched that on the Always Sunny uh, episode. Step one, like, demonstrate value. <laughs> Step two, have a watch always saying. Engage her physically. Step three, uh, nurture dependence. <laughs> Step four, exactly this. what's the second N? Uh, neglect entirely. <laughs> Step five, what's the I? Um, Instigate fear? I think you might be right. After, uh, anyway, it's just <laughs> when we talked about this, uh, there's always this point in Dennis where he's outside making this woman scared for her life and has this fake voice and says, Welcome to hell. <laughs> and so that's why we started thinking about this. And also my week last week with work because that's what it was. But the things that you mentioned and they're great sound bites. If it's a death case, they probably could come in and sentencing. If if it's not a death case, then obviously you've got lawyers standing up like we would do and say, hey, there's rules of evidence. What about rule 404B? Other crimes, wrongs, act. You can't just get in there and say he's a creepy guy at a bar that called someone a B-I-T-C-H. You can't just go in there and say that he was a good citizen and helped out some young lady uh, with her uh, surveillance system, <laughs> her security <laughs> slash surveillance system. Um, he needs to have a fair trial. Unless, now a common exception to that, is well, if it's an identity case, then They're you want to speak about his character, right. common scheme, plan. plan. They'd have to show enough similarities between right. this killing stalking to right. prior ones. Which so I don't know that just being a creep at a bar after a few beers <laughs> makes them that different than half of the men out there. But it's it's definitely noteworthy for the internet now. Whether it enters this trial. I don't know. Now, I think the if they had a lot more kind of data behind the friend who he helped with the security system and they showed that he was 
watching her from his right. home computer, like in the shower or whatever. It and it was it was really know. like a reverse. That would be quite relevant, I think. <laughs> um, and they'd probably have some criminologist come and testify about the evolution of a serial killer and how we like... Mm-hmm. Does his first creepy thing and then progresses and, the waters. and kind of continues to get more aroused by things of that nature until he has to do like the unthinkable. So, but you know, it, 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 those are things, if true, give the prosecution kind of a, a, a smorgasbord to pluck from and try to uh, make into a great case against him. So, very interesting. A charcuterie board of yes. evidence. Um, so one thing that I think is going to be obvious is that they're going to talk about his mental health. I believe, I believe that'd be wise. Can you guys kind of share how you think that could be beneficial, perhaps, if you were representing him to talk about his mental health? I mean, he's being, I guess the first thing to understand is that he's being intensely evaluated for months now by his defense team. Um, and typically, you know, you're evaluating someone well death penalty mitigation is a little bit different um that kind of evaluation that psychosocial evaluation but like just the bare bones is are you competent to stand trial um and are is there some other like mental health deficiency i mean it appears he's competent in all regards but if he has some kind of personality disorder something like that luke can be used in try to keep people from keep the government from killing him at some point yeah it comes down to not if there was some mental health crisis or defect that caused him to not be able to conform his actions to the law at the time of the incident that is a defense and we're talking about McNaughton case we're talking about state level as well but that those are pretty rare those are the proverbial hen's tooth Um, now if you get evaluated heavily and your evaluation says, hey, you're borderline personality disorder. That doesn't help you. That's that's bad. It's, it just means that you're callous, you're immoral, you're remorseless, but you knew what was going on. Um, you really need to have some uh, doctor to competently say that, that you couldn't control yourself, that you were compelled to do the thing, or you didn't know right from wrong, a true break. Otherwise, it's what we call mitigating. You know, you might say, for example, I've got a, I have a client, let's say, who's got a borderline IQ and tons of trauma and PTSD and a couple other things, but he knew what was going on at the time of an incident and he knows what's going on now, although he may not be very smart. So it doesn't absolve him of a crime, but it does make potentially down the road a jury, especially if they're deciding the sentence between life and death go, this guy never had a chance. He was not dealt a great hand of cards and life only made it worse. I can't impose a death sentence on him. So it's mitigation, but it does take a lot to get to those truly psychotic individuals. You think about like someone who had an onset of schizophrenia and thought they were a space rapper during the crime I've had that happen before not me but one of my clients a space rapper a rapper from space (laughs) please expand yeah I mean and there's a certain age range that's pretty hallmark for uh, schizophrenia but if you're that I had a client once who had some basic random run the mill young guy stupid stuff and he sat in jail and decompensated before my eyes 
with schizophrenia and he really honestly didn't know his name had this this paranoid delusional idea that he was a rapper from space and that everybody wanted to hurt him but due to his great raps and good beats good beats and he just was in his own little convoluted complex delusional entirely separate reality it was very sad I hated to see him go through that but they couldn't prosecute him for that in his mental state and he he spent a long time in a state hospital and it was almost worse than what he would have gotten unfortunately had he been competent so like those are those are kind of rare cases that something like that would completely absolve you from responsibility. They do exist, but right now, um, Mr. Koberger is undergoing has to be undergoing extensive evaluation. It's probably already happened. Uh, I just don't see any outward signs like just or hear anything that would make me think that there's anything truly amazing there. Um, you know, I know a couple. There's several high-profile cases where people have brain damage, and it really affects them. And so I just we'll have to see how it plays out. But that is a huge component of any of any death case, particularly. It has to be explored, and really any murder case. But sometimes you explore it, and it just doesn't bear fruit from a defense standpoint. Mm-hmm. And then Idaho, well, in Idaho you can't. I guess plead insanity or insanity isn't a defense. Can you talk about what that would look like? In I guess, yeah. <laughs> well, that would surprise me. Are you where are you finding? Where are you reading that? Um, this was from notes from like another uh, podcast that discussed. Hmm. They had like a lawyer on from that area. I don't know. I, I don't know anything about Idaho law, but I mean it's. If you're insane and you get, you can't be sentenced to death if you're insane, um, it would be cruel and unusual punishment. So maybe there's something, some unique provision of Idaho law. We need to dig into that. Yeah. Answer, answer, we'll answer that question next time because that would be difficult. I mean, we have weird, like in South Carolina, we have insanity you know you're not criminally responsible due to the things i've been describing or but you can be guilty but mentally ill which is really just you're guilty but you have very mitigating things in your mind you're mentally ill but not not to a point where it really help you so i have to look into that to give you a good answer on that um i guess like the example that was given in this one podcast they had um this attorney come on he was explaining the difference between mental competency and insanity and how you could use like lack of mental competency i suppose to show that you know this person you know for example like viewed these people as like ghosts or like it wasn't part of their reality Mm -hmm. um and they therefore i guess wouldn't be guilty of that or wouldn't um get the death penalty versus I don't know how that would be different than pleading someone insanity or insane. I'll well, do some research on that because that, that gets down to the crux of not being able to conform your actions to the law. I mean, if you were in such a mental health crisis at the time of the allegation and like Luke, Luke says it's the hen's tooth which is a weird I've always found that phrase to be weird. Proverbial hen's tooth. It's, it's the unicorn, all right? It's, the, it's very rare, but someone who truly cannot conform their actions to the law because of some psychotic episode 
And we have cases like those. Um, then they, and if that is established through an evaluation at the time, mm. then they can't be found guilty because they can't conform to the law. Now, that's kind of different from someone that maybe maybe they were competent at the time of the allegation, but now they're having mental health issues because they're not getting their medications in jail and they're not competent currently, but they're likely to be restored to competency in the future to assess their their lawyer. That's different. Um, so we'd have, I definitely want to look we'll at do that. Some, we'll do some more digging on that. Um, but I believe uh, that is all we have. We have some homework to do. Homework. Um, but then we will be back. I guess we won't. We'll be back next week. It's Memorial Day. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. Um, so we'll, she's like, I'm gonna be on the lake. I'm gonna be Hashtag lake life. Um, <laughs> well, we we will talk about it. Yeah, we'll talk about it. Uh, <laughs> someone said best lawyers around. Um, ah, so yeah. nice. Oh, thank you. Thank uh, you. <laughs> so. Stay tuned. Follow us on our socials to see if we will have another episode uh, next week. We will probably just stay on Coburger um, with the information that is kind of presented that's like squeezed out every week. Um, And we love y'all's questions. So if you guys have any questions, please feel free to send us messages about those and we will be happy to discuss those. Um, Once again, you can find us on Spotify for the full episode, also YouTube. Um, You can follow along on Instagram, Obviously, TikTok, LinkedIn, Facebook. Obviously, MySpace. Obviously, MySpace as well. (laughs) Um, Anywhere that you've got socials, I'm sure we're on them. Um, And you can also donate to this podcast if you feel so inclined. The links to do so, you can find those on our Instagram or streaming platforms. We would love to be be, uh, reimbursed for some some of this hard work that goes into this podcast. We appreciate you guys, and we will see you all next time. Thanks so much. This is Bring the Jury.